can't get enough of football? Chance, goal, superhuman, special, special goal. Incredible, just incredible. Now you can get the inside look. Welcome to Football Insiders, your home for informed, insightful and independent opinion, news and talk on football from the team behind Fair Play Publishing and the Football Writers Festival. Oh, what an introduction! Welcome to Football Insiders. We've had a bit of a break in recent weeks um, for a range of reasons, but we're back. And of course, Football Insiders is the podcast home for Fair Play Publishing and the Football Writers Festival. In case this is the first time you've caught us, we've previously spoken with a range of our authors and other football insiders, and today we're talking with someone whose book we published earlier this year, Achieving the Impossible, the remarkable story of Greece's Euro 2004 victory by George Chitsonis. The amazing thing about this book is that it took 16 years to write it. It didn't take George 16 years to write it, but it took 16 years for an English language version of what was a remarkable victory by Greece in the Euro 2004 Championships. And we're going to talk to George about how he came to write that book and and why. And um, the the fact that it is the first English language book. So considering the large Greek diasporas around the world, hats off to George for having the initiative to get up and do it and write what is, is quite a remarkable book as well. So without any further ado, let's have a chat with George. Welcome, George. Hello, Bonita. Great to be it's, here. Uh, yeah, it's, it's lovely to talk to you at last, uh, all the way from now. Am I saying it correctly? Walpole, New, Walpole. New Hampshire? Walpole, New Hampshire, yes. yes. Not quite sure whether there might have been an American way of saying that. <laughs> and for the benefit of our listeners, you are obviously predominantly in Australia, um, and particularly our, our very dear friends in Melbourne um, who are still under quite strict lockdown with COVID. How are things in your part of the world? Um, in our specific area, um, as far as COVID is, we, we're doing okay. Um, I think you probably all have heard um, how the rest of the country is doing, which is not so good and still, you know, not really trending too positively in the right direction. I mean, small gains, I guess, have been made. But, um, but yeah, just in, in, our, in our little town, in our little area here, the state of New Hampshire, which is just about a million people, um, We've we've been lucky in that um, we've not been hit too hard by the virus. Um, so, you know, I guess just like everybody else around the world, just trying to take things day by day at this point. Yeah, and when you say your little part of the world is a million people, is that your town or is that your well, state? No, no, that's my that's our state. So one of the fifty states. Uh, we're in New Hampshire. We're probably one of the five smallest um, in the United States. So um, up in the northeast corner of the country. But very important when it comes to the U.S. presidential election. Yes, yes. We are one of the probably about 10 swing states um, that can kind of dictate which way the election will go. So, um, yeah, we'll have our say, even though we're we're one of the small guys. Yeah, I I won't ask you about that yet. Maybe at the end of the show I'll ask if you've got a tip on the U.S. election because, uh, you know, as as we were speaking before we started recording, um, some of us sit here and watch in absolute amazement and, and uh, the yeah. actual challenge of getting people out to vote when we are in a country where it's compulsory to vote is just something we find difficult to comprehend. Oh, I can imagine. Yeah, I can imagine, yeah. certainly. But we're here to talk about your wonderful book, um, Achieving the Impossible. 
Um, for those of you who are not aware of it, um, it's Achieving the Impossible, the remarkable story of Greece's Euro 2004 victory, which we brought out, we published on the day in which Euro 2020 would have started, right. which coincidentally um, was the day Euro 2004 started. So there was those amazing coincidences and, of course, we're still waiting for Euro 2020 in, in for next year. Yeah. Um, but, George, tell us about what why you start, why you got into, what made you want to write this book? Um, obviously, you're a, a Greek-American. We've got a lot of uh, Greek-Australians who will be listening to this in particular. What made you want to do it? Well, just like so many of those people, I think, um, you know, that was probably the pinnacle of my uh, sporting life, um, watching Greece uh, during that tournament, um, match by match, you know, experiencing things that as Greek football fans, we would have never expected. Um, so um, I always look fondly back on that tournament. Um, a few years ago, when I was just randomly, it was one summer afternoon, and my wife and kids happened to be away. And I was like, you know, I'm just gonna look up some Euro 2004 stuff. It was, it was about, oh, about 13 years after the tournament took place. I was like, I just want to read some articles, kind of go take a trip down memory lane. And it was it was just kind of difficult for me to realize that after about half an hour, 45 minutes of trying to just, you know, read articles online, there was really not much English language coverage of the tournament itself, really, but also of Greece's uh, success. I mean, there's there's some tremendous pieces out there, um, but, you know, it's kind of sparse as far as uh, coverage in the English language. And, um, you know, I thought that this being obviously something that I was really excited about, but also in just in general, um, just this kind of miracle run by a, such an unfancied side. And I was just really, you know, it just kind of took me back as, as to how, you know, there was such little um, written in English about this success. I mean, there's obviously a, a decent amount of coverage in Greek. Um, but, you know, once you get past that, there's really not that much out there. Um, especially any sort of in-depth coverage. So, you know, I just started taking a few notes. I'm like, well, let me let me see if I can. And I've, I've written for various outlets, and I was like, maybe I can put something together a little bit more comprehensive. And one thing led to another, and, you know, I started delving into it a little bit, and, you know, I started to realize maybe, maybe I can make something a little bit bigger than just an article out of this. Um, and, you know, chapter one came and went, and I just kind of kept on going from there. And for lack of a better writer to do it, I thought maybe what the heck, I'll just kind of go with it and see what happens. So. Well, I don't think it needed a better writer. I think it's extraordinarily well written. And, and what, what's remarkable too from it, or what's really touching from it is it really is from the heart. And I, I just want to touch on that. And you talk about your dad and that. Right. How did you get into soccer? We'll call it soccer because we're talking with you. Sure. <laughs> when, when you visit, when you visit Australia, eventually you'll have to refer to it as football. <laughs> yeah, sure, sure. Um, so yeah, I guess um, as in many cases, uh, the love of the game kind of came from uh, my parents, my dad especially. Um, you know, he uh, grew up in Greece, playing on the platea, the square of his village, um, which is. Um, a place where I have fond memories as well, that same village and uh, summers in Greece, um, um, you know, playing long into the night, you know, with uh, with a few uh, spotlights on us or whatnot. So, you know, uh, uh, all these experiences, as well as like playing in my hometown of Walpole with um, friends and family that I grew up with, uh, somehow we just kind of, while soccer is, especially when I was growing up, not the most popular sport in the United States and still not. Um, there was kind of something magical that happened in my area where we just had a group of kids that got together and we ended up being best friends and growing up together who loved the game. 
Um, and we just we could not get enough of it. And so when we started to get it on television and when we would just, you know, any chance we get, try to get out and play, uh, we just, we just ate that up. So, um, you know, it first came from my dad and then traveled to Greece and playing with cousins and friends that I would make there. And then the ones that I had in my uh, hometown, I was just kind of surrounded by the game constantly. And there was just something magical whenever I saw that green grass to, um, you know, just something that kind of made me always, it just attracted me to it. So, um, you know, I've been just a bona fide soccer lover since I can remember, you know, um, and to, to this day, you know, even though we have problems within our game, sometimes uh, that remains. Yeah, it's amazing. I think that does endure for a lot of people. We, we you know, we've, we've watched the US Soccer Federation and what it, it's gone through. We've had similar ructions here and, of course, worldwide, right. um, but we still love the game. And you can separate the two. Yeah. People, people think you can't, but you can. I, I, I've right. got to ask, um, we're, Greek Australians are often referred to as grozzies. Um, <laughs> so, and one of the first questions that they always ask is, well, you mentioned your a village in Greece. Which part of Greece are your parents from? So they're from central Greece, um, the region of uh, Thessaly, and more specifically, um, the town surrounding a city called Karditsa, um, mm-hmm. which actually recently in the last couple of days has been hit by a pretty serious hurricane, um, and there's been extensive damage to some of those towns. So our thoughts and, and prayers are now going out to a lot of people that we know and, and, and others in that region. But it's a, it's a beautiful um, area. It's It's got such an amazing mix of mountains and um, plains. Um, so, you know, you, you'll drive, you know, from my grandparents' village, which is about 2,000 feet uh, altitude. And within 45 minutes, you can be in these crazy cotton fields that just stretch for for so long. And then 20 minutes after that, you can be on the beach. So it's it's just an amazingly beautiful place. And, you know, I'm really lucky to have, you know, family be from that part of Greece. But as, as anybody that's visited Greece probably can can attest to um, it's just you know a beautiful country, but then I'm I'm a little biased as well. Yeah, it is a beautiful country. That's that's for sure. I, I was interested in what you were saying about you know um, soccer isn't the most popular sport in America, and sure we're we're aware of that, but it is from our perception here. It certainly seems to be growing, and particularly in the women's game um, because of the success of the women's team. But you, you talked about how you played it as a child in Walpole. Um, was that because there was a Greek di- diaspora basically living in that part or was it just that's what the kids played? No, it just happened to be, um, you know, we don't have a really sizable Greek community in the area that I'm from, um, but um, it just happened to kind of coincide that it was this group of kids that really soccer became their kind of favorite sport. You know, there was a few of us that played different sports here and there, but for the most part, something just stuck with soccer and, you know, it was, it was kind of very unique, um, you know, to have pick up soccer games every day after school for us, whereas most of the time, you know, kids would be going out and playing basketball or, or another sport. So, um, you know, I just was kind of lucky to, to grow up in an area where, you know, I had that kind of experience uh, on a day in, day out basis. Yeah. Um, you, you mentioned that, you know, when you started writing the book and, you you know, chapter one came and went so easily, but you had also been writing for other things. What what you know, what what got you into writing in the first place, and and it, do you just write around football or other other things as well? Yeah, for the most part, it's always been about football. Um, you know, I grew up trying to get my hands on anything um, soccer related. So um, you know, when I got 
uh, when I would travel somewhere and it'd be a bookstore and I've always been interested in reading and books and whatnot. And there would be this, you know, magazine rack and I'd see a world soccer on there, for instance, or, um, you know, later on 442 or anything, any, any, we used to have a magazine here called Soccer America, which I subscribed to. I was probably the last subscriber, um, you know, when it, when it ended, I mean, it was, it was probably going on 15 years and I could not get, I could not wait every week for that magazine to come. Um, you know, so as I got a little bit older out of college and whatnot, and, um, you know, I thought that maybe, um, you know, as, as something on the side, maybe I could pursue that, um, sort of, uh, freelance career. And, you know, again, luckily, um, you know, I've got a few breaks with some great editors and whatnot and was able to, you know, write for 442 and some FIFA publications as well. And just some various other outlets, either um, in print or online. And, you know, I've just loved it. I've loved being able to kind of delve into the stories of the game, whether it's, you know, I have written predominantly about Greek soccer, but also, um, you know, maybe sometimes where the spotlight doesn't shine, uh, covering stories, you know, from from places all over the world, um, speaking to people from Haiti, from Rwanda, from Liechtenstein, just anywhere where, you know, we could get maybe the feel of the game on the ground where um, sometimes, you know, the focus is maybe on the bigger leagues, on the on the more popular teams. I always kind of love to see, you know, the passion that's there at the grassroots level. Yeah, it's what, it is a common thing around the world, isn't it? There's, there's this passion just just in playing, just in picking up the ball and, as you, as Americans refer to it, pick up games. Yeah. yeah. Right. <laughs> um, one, of, one of the other things in, in your book too, which is sort of the access that you had to a lot of the key characters in, in that or the key personalities, how did, how did you go about that? Was it, did, and what did people, I guess, in the Greek football community um, in Greece say when you said, well, I'm writing this first English language book about this whole victory? Yes. Yeah, so, um, you know, living in the age of social media obviously has its downfalls, but for, for somebody trying to contact people that, um, you know, are quite a ways away and, and me being a fairly unknown writer, um, you know, it has, it had its advantages. So, um, whether it was, um, sometimes an email address that I was able to find for, for a player or, um, going on their social media and just sending out messages, hoping, you know, for responses, um, you know, I kind of tried to go about it in a v- various ways, hoping that, you know, we would get some responses. And luckily, you know, many players were, were kind of eager to talk about their experiences. Um, the Greek football community as a whole was fantastic as far as journalists and um, officials. And so, well, let me say journalists and players were, were very open, um, you know, very willing to help. I will say that the Greek Football Federation, you know, and I don't want to get too negative in this, but um, I will say they were a very little to no help uh, during the entire process. When, when you're contacting federations from Portugal or Spain and they're getting back to you very quickly, you know, kind of looking to help you out where they have really nothing to gain. And the Greek Football Federation just time and time again, it would just be a bunch of dead ends as far as, you know, trying to do something, you know, for to maybe just just raise the profile of, of the sport in a tiny way but also to kind of tell the story of probably their greatest moment. So that was a little disconcerting, but again, it was, it was um, offset by the players who the ones I spoke to were just so eager to tell their stories and to share their experiences. And you'll talk to somebody, for instance, like Kostas Katsouranis, who was telling you, you know, um, what it felt like to be on the bus on the way to the final and just, you know, I'm getting goosebumps, like, just talking about it right now. I mean, it's just amazing to have that type of access and to, to hear what it must have felt like for these guys who never thought they would probably be in, in that situation ever. So, yeah. Yeah. 
And, and, and it must have been able, I mean, I would have thought as a player to have your story told in another language because, as you mentioned, there's a lot written about it in Greek. Right. Um, and, you know, as much as, you know, there's not that many people in the world who actually speak and read Greek. Right. Yeah, <laughs> um, for sure. So, did, did that aspect of the writing process, was that something that you discussed with them or was it just, when I say just, was it about the game only? No, I think I had to always lead with that because, again, they were not, I was not probably somebody they had heard of. So, um, you know, and, and sometimes in Greece, things tend to happen when you kind of know somebody who knows somebody and, and whatnot. And I don't, I don't have really that, those connections. I mean, I, I know a few people and, and, and some of them have been of great help, but, um, you know, as far as people really involved in the game. I don't have my connections, you know, don't, don't go very far. So I always tried to lead with the fact that, you know, I was hoping to tell this story in English um, because of the fact that, you know, that such little, little coverage was there. And I thought it was just a sporting, you know, miracle that, that should be told. And, and again, for the most part, they, they were so receptive to that and so willing to give up their time and, um, you know, and share with me, you know, just some, some amazing material and, you know, just, just superb stuff as far as I was concerned, you know, of, uh, of the kind of the, the inner workings of the team and, um, you know, anything else that that kind of occurred during that kind of tremendous journey back in 2004. I think that is a fascinating part of it too, is getting the access on the internal workings of the team. I mean, many, many, many years ago, I was team manager for the Socceroos Australian men's national team. And so I probably somewhat uniquely have a bit of an insight into how that works behind the scenes, but mm-hmm. um, a lot of people don't, and I think it's fascinating, and particularly as this particular team went through that tournament. Um, what's one of the most interesting or amusing or unexpected things that you learned, or perhaps all three of those things <laughs> that you learned along the way um, as you were researching and talking to them? I mean, um, I guess I knew the influence that Otto Rahagel had on the group as far as from afar. You know, we knew that tactically um, he was able to really organize this side. Um, I knew that he was a kind of a disciplinarian coach. Um, However, when you speak to some of the players, you realize the human touch that he had and the way that he really got through to them and and, and through that gained their trust and was able to kind of mold them into United side, which you really couldn't say about Greek sides of the past. It's a country that's produced some superb individual players, but time and time again at the national team level, um, there's always a disconnect between the players, the coaching staff, and the federation. And when Rahagel came in, he was able to kind of bring those three groups together. And and the ways he did it sometimes were, were kind of, you know, uh, somewhat – Offbeat, uh, perhaps. Uh, one story is of him um, right before the quarterfinal match against France. He's trying to talk to the players and kind of preparing them for the match uh, with his uh, kind of last instructions. And at one point, um, he starts boxing, shadow boxing with his assistant coach, Yanis Topalidis. Um, and I mean, they were just kind of going at it and he was throwing kind of real punches, you know, um, not really hitting him, but, you know, trying to make it look as real as possible and just kind of saying to the players, you know, if if we go on full attack against this France team, he's like, they're Muhammad Ali. They'll knock us right out, okay? But if we kind of pick our moments and kind of keep moving and keep jabbing and, and, and find our spots, he's like, we can beat them down. And the players kind of, you know, the ones I talked to were, you know, they, they said they were kind of looking at each other with a smirk. But these were kind of the little moments that, um, you know, along the way that Rahagel was able to kind of capitalize on to bring this group together. And, and in that way, 
making maybe making them feel as though they could they could take on anybody, and, and which is what they did. You know, they were they played teams that were vastly superior to them in the talent department. However, you know, when it was on the pitch, these these players, these these twenty three players, had a real belief that they could beat anybody on any given day. So, you know, the Rahagel aspect for me was always of like big interest. Um, you know, because from afar, you know that he's he's had this influence, but then you talk to the players and you realize that it's not just tactic. It's not just, okay, this is how we're going to set up and we're going to defend and we're going to hit on the counterattack or whatnot. It was everything else, the care that he showed to them, the way he was able to communicate with them through um, the assistant manager, Topolidis. Their relationship was also key. Um, yeah, very important, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah certainly. And, and we must remember, too, that they were the only two coaches on that side. There was no goalkeeping coach, no strength and conditioning coach, no no other coaches. Today we will see, you know, a whole crew on the bench there, you know, with data analysts or whatnot and everything. These were two guys um, that kind of led this group, and that just makes it for me even more amazing. Do you think we're overcoached today? We've got too many people? You know, sometimes oh, I can feel the things being thrown at me from afar as I say. I do a little bit of coaching at the youth level, and I'm sure maybe that's been levied at me against me at, at some points. But no, I think you know, I think there's something to be said about you know maybe not being so hyper focused on the tactical and even technical elements sometimes, and maybe just taking a step back and realizing that you know. These are still people that you're dealing with. They're, they're players. They have emotional needs. They, we need to, you know, be treating them in the right way. And, you know, if, if you're able, and this is rare in sports, but if you're able to become a family, I think, you know, that becomes maybe the most important thing, not just, you know, whether tactically and technically, um, you know, what the quality is. But, um, yeah, I mean, sometimes, you know, I think there's something to be said about all the kind of new innovations that have happened in the game. But at the same time, you know, it's the 11 players that go out there and, and certainly coaching helps. But, you know, it's a player's game. Uh, soccer, football has always been a player's game. You can prepare as a coach, but the decision making of the players, I feel, is always it trumps everything. Yeah. And, and how those decisions are made together, because at the end of the day, one player can make a mistake. Right. But he's got another or she's got another 10 who can pick up on it and make it OK. Certainly. certainly. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, there, one one of the things that you also um, mentioned, and I've just lost my train of thought because I've got a small dog running around in the, in the room, so you'll have to excuse me. <laughs> um, um, but one of the other things that I, I um, think is gets back to what you said at the beginning is that not a lot has been written about this remarkable victory. Um, and and particularly, obviously, in English. Do you think that was in part because it was perhaps overshadowed in 2004 by the Athens Olympic Games? Yeah, I'm sure that there's something probably that, that goes along with that. And, you know, for Greeks, they call 2004 the magical summer, the summer of Greece. And so that kind of does get grouped together with the Olympics. And perhaps, you know, it being a grouping like that, maybe it takes a little bit of the gloss off of um, the Euro 2004 win. I think part of the reason that I've seen that I've, noticed in my analysis of just the media coverage and, and, and lack thereof um, is that it's that it's such a negative take has been kind of placed on Greece winning this tournament due to the tactics used by the Greek side and by Otto Rahagel. And certainly, you know, the, if you had to, you know, if you had to pick if they played offense or defense, which side they, it leaned towards, it leans heavily towards defense. However, having watched the games many times now, um, 
you know, and over and over again. And yes, maybe I'm a little biased because I am Greek, but I think you'll find that that side in particular, that 2004 Greek side was, was very tactically flexible. And when they did receive the ball, they looked to get forward as quickly as possible. And I believe that too much has been kind of made on, okay, Greece sat back and just, you know, defended their way to victory. And certainly there's times in that tournament where, you know, for instance, against France in the last 20 minutes, yes, they dropped back. They tried to, you know, defend for their lives. And moments, you know, against the Czech Republic in the semifinals and even against Portugal, you know. However, I think it's it's a it's a real stretch to say that they did this for always for 90 minutes or, in the case of the Czech Republic, 105 minutes. Unfortunately, I think that's the narrative that's kind of been given to that side. And, you know, I think having looked back on the tournament, I think that's quite unfair. I think that, you know, if you look at where these players were in 2001 when Heigl took over um, to where they ended up, I think, you know, you, you, you look at a team that grew and grew and, you know, there's parts of that tournament where they play exceptionally well. For the, the opener against Portugal, for instance, I mean, they really played Portugal off the park in, in large parts of that match. You know, I think the narrative maybe comes after they beat France. Maybe maybe we need to figure out why this is happening and, and assess some sort of, you know, tag on it. But, um, you know, I wonder if that has kind of kept it from kind of becoming a bigger story that we sometimes feel the need to explain, okay, you know, this happened because of this, only because they kind of defended for their lives. But I think it's a little bit more um, more complex than that. Yeah, I think it's actually a very, very good point about the narrative came after the, the France game. And, uh, you know, in a, in a sense, countries like France would have to set that narrative to explain why they lost as well. Yeah, right. um, and one of the things that's remarkable about the European Championships, you mostly get the sort of expected or, or top sort of nations winning all the time and that, that's mm-hmm. part of the even in football right. and the domination of European football compared with the rest of the world, whether it be the World Cup or in the individual leagues or whatever. So it's a very, really interesting point and we tend to sort of think, well, Greece is sort of a, a second-rung, maybe even a third-rung country yeah. in some right. terms. How could yeah. they possibly yeah. Yeah. Right. yeah, I agree. And, and, and you know, I think... For me, it's a breath of fresh air when I see a team do well at a major finals. You know, when you see a uh, kind of an unfancy side, a kind of a side, as you said, maybe, you know, a second or third level type of side, um, you know, kind of make a breakthrough. I think that's only good for the sport. And I think we should be more applauding those types of situations, not necessarily, you know. I mean, for instance, you know, Italy's had some great sides in the past. And we put such a positive light on their defense, you know, when, when, when Italy has a 1-0 lead, we always talk about how there's no way another side will get back into this, you know, because the Italians know how to defend. It's more of sometimes a positive um, spin that gets associated with that. So, you know, again, maybe a side that's not historically as successful, maybe we need to figure out ways and, and, and assess why. But, you know, I, I think we, we just have to enjoy when the, that type of situation occurs in world football because, like you said, it is rare. Yes, and really that's why we love it because we all yeah. have that hope that yeah. it's going to happen. Yeah. <laughs> um, what, what do you think was the single best game that they played? I mean, you mentioned the opener against Portugal. Well, what do you think? What, you know, and you said you've watched the games a number of times. Yeah. Which, as, as purely from a fan's perspective, which one did you enjoy the most? I think the way they came out in the opener against Portugal really set the tone for the rest of the tournament. Um, they were first to every ball. They they took care of the ball really well in possession. 
They looked to, to hit uh, Portugal very quickly when they did regain possession. And they, and they really had the Portuguese rattled. And I think, you know, if, if you look back now, um, that was such a statement that they provided in that opening match that for them, you know, they, they, if, they, if you can beat the host nation um, in the opener inside their own stadium, it, it kind of gives you the hope that you can go on from there. And, and I certainly, you know, I, I invite anybody to go back and watch that match. And Portugal does come on into it in the last 10 minutes or so. But you'd expect that from a host uh, to try to get back when they were 2-0 down. And they get back to 2-1 right at the death, but Greece holds on. But I think the overall performance of that game was so promising and it showed so much. So I would probably pick that match out. As far as, you know, grit and determination, I think you cannot look past the last two matches uh, against the Czech Republic, who they were, they were probably outplayed on the whole in that match. But again, they hung on, they, they, they fought for each other, and they came through and got better as overtime, uh, extra time came. Um, you know, and, and Portugal, again, in the, in the final, I think it was a really even, even matchup. Portugal had more of the ball, probably, probably just shaded it in chances. But again, Greece hung in there and, and again, picked their moment. And, and I think credit to them, credit to any side that's able to kind of do that uh, in the yeah. host yard. And it's not too much to emphasize again, it's, you know, that, that in that final, as well as in the opening match, they played the home team. I mean, yeah. having been host to the Asian Cup in 2015 and right. Australia being the host and being in the final, you know, my sense going to that game and even as I walked to it is there's no way Australia was going to lose this game. Yeah, yeah and, right. You know, yeah, just as we expect in 2023 as well. <laughs> yeah. um, well, George, we've probably about come to the end of our time for the podcast, but just just um, a couple of couple of questions. I noticed in, in the background of as I'm talking with you, you've got a scarf, which is obviously a, a bipartisan scarf. Yes, 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 it is. Oh, it's, oh, it's, from, it's from the Euro uh, 2004 final, so part of Greece, yeah. part of Portugal. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay, of course. I should have I should have picked that up. I couldn't see the words at all. Just a little bit of colour. So it's right, great. To right, see. Right. <laughs> um, and I um, guess finally I will return to the, the big issue for November the 3rd. <laughs> okay, right. it's go, we're all desperately to want to know here. How do you think it will go from your part of the world? You know, it's so difficult to, um, to predict because of the way the election is set up with the electoral college that we have and the popular vote not necessarily mattering as far as, you know, if, uh, if a certain candidate has – the most electoral votes, which is, you know, winning in the states that they that they need to win. So, you know, Democrats and Republicans are probably split as far as about 40 states go. Um, and, and about 10 of a ton of the rest of the states, 10 are in play, really, as far as November goes, barring any sort of kind of unforeseen events. Um, um, you know, Joe Biden looks to be ahead in most polls in those states. Um, but, you know, the story was the same four years ago. Um, you know, where, you know, Hillary Clinton looked like she was ahead as well. And, you know, let's not forget, she did receive almost 3 million more votes than Donald Trump and still lost the election. So, you know, to make predictions is so tough. And I think it's also the type of situation where, you know, where there's still two months, almost well, a month and a half, really, I guess, uh, left. So there, it, there's so much that could go right or wrong, I guess, <laughs> depending on the way you're looking at it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's right. Well, look, I can only say that uh, I wish the United States of America and all the very, very lovely people who live there all the best on that particular day. Um, with that, I, I will will finish off. Just one more quick question is, you know, do you have another book in you? 
you once once you've written one and you've seen one in the flesh, yeah. Um, up at the moment do you have another yeah. one yeah i think so i guess i'm still trying to figure out what it might be um you know there's always been a part of me that kind of wants to test the waters of fiction but you know they, it is a difficult uh process but you know that's always kind of in the back of my story some in my, back of my head some you know maybe nice greek american story um that kind of you know touches upon cultural identity or you know, because sometimes we do feel, you know, as I'm sure just some Greek Australians can attest to, maybe a little bit in limbo sometimes. You know, you go to Greece, you feel really American. You are here in the United States, you feel very Greek. Um, and sometimes, you know, you, you wonder, you know, which side of the, the coin do I really fall on? Or, you know, is it really split down the middle? So, you know, um, kind of issues like that have always interested me and maybe something I'll touch upon at some point. But, you know, football is always there and I've always had a love for that. And, you know, I always kind of on the lookout after writing this book, I was like, I'm not sure if I'll ever do a book again. That was, that was a lot of work, but now having spent a little bit of time away from it, I think I'm kind of eager to maybe get back into something at some point. Yeah, it is a lot of work to write a book for anyone listening. I mean, they, it, you know, you, you talked about how chapter one, it, chapter one came and went, but everything after that and however many times you shifted around to get it right and all of that sort of thing. And, you know, even even football fiction and the issue of cultural identity, um, there are a whole range of issues there that could be raised. So there you go. I hope we we whet your appertite. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, thank you, George, for your time um, this afternoon in in your time and um, I wish you all the best for the book and um, we've loved being able to publish it and, um, and all the best to you and your family. Bonita, I just want to say it's been an honor to be able to um, to work with you, and uh, and I'm so indebted that um, you took the chance to to publish the book. Um, that'll always mean the world to me. Um, and to be on here speaking with you has been an absolute pleasure. So um, um, my my deepest deepest thanks for for everything. Oh, that that's a pleasure. Thank you, George. Thank you very much. And that's it um, for Football Insiders this week. Thanks again to George Sitonis in Walpole, New Hampshire. It was wonderful to to speak with George and learn more about his book, which I would highly recommend, not just for any Greek Australian and mad football fan of, of, of Greece, but anyone who likes to read about what was a fairy tale journey for the Greece team at that time. And as George mentioned in the podcast, the fact that someone who didn't expect to win actually won. Achieving the Impossible, the remarkable story of Greece's Euro 2004 victory by George Titsonis, available via Fair Play Publishing and, and Good Football Books, as well as in a digital version. If you want to catch up on any other football reading, please head to fairplaypublishing.com.au where there are not only a range of books on Australian football history, culture, biographies, fiction and memoir, but also the back catalogue of this podcast and our Play On magazine. We've now published six of those and our next one will be available in December. But before then, you can also um, join us in Sydney on the 21st to 22nd of November. We've got the second annual Football Writers Festival. The lineup of speakers is really quite amazing. Um, it includes James Johnson from FFA. It includes Simon Pearce and Danny Townsend from the A-League and a whole range of authors, journalists, writers and commentators with some fascinating issues to be discussed. Tickets are just $15 for the two days. Head to footballwriterswestival.com.au and you must purchase them beforehand because they're selling fast and we also have limited places due to COVID restrictions. In the meantime, please stay safe, maintain your social distance even as we get fewer community transmissions 
and an extra special shout out still to our Victorian listeners, wishing you all the best. We close with a brief excerpt of relevant music (laughs) for a book about the Greek national team and we'll be back soon with another Football Insiders podcast. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to Football Insiders from the team behind Fair Play Publishing, home of the Football Writers Festival. Be the first to get inside access by subscribing. And to get more, head to fairplaypublishing.com.au.